welcome to Build, and a special edition of Skullduggery. I am Dan Clydman, the editor-in-chief of Yahoo News and the co-host of Skullduggery. And we're here with the co-authors of, of an explosive new book on the Russia scandal, uh, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. They are Yahoo News Chief Investigative Correspondent Michael Isakoff. Hello there. <laughs> also my co-host on Skullduggery. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, not and forget. And Dave Korn, the uh, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine. Uh, so I don't want to go over your long, illustrious uh, resumes. I will say uh, that these are two of the best investigative reporters in Washington. Uh, they are what the military calls... Uh, 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 force multipliers. Uh, individually, they're amazing, but put them together and watch out. Uh, the book is full of scoops and revelations, um, and everybody is talking about it in Washington and beyond. Um, there's so much in it, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, let's start at the beginning. So all along, the big question has been, why has Trump been so solicitous of the Russians uh, and of Putin? Um, and your very first chapter, uh, I think, really gets at that in a pretty powerful way, which is his November 2013 trip to Moscow, kind right. of the roots of the scandal in some ways. So just tell us about that. Mike, why don't you start, and then David. Right. Well, that's where it all began, the Miss Universe pageant uh, in Moscow 2013. Um, it actually, the, the roots of that, you go back five months earlier to Las Vegas, um, Miss USA pageant, feeder to Miss USA, to, to Miss Universe. Uh, that's where Trump meets uh, these two Russian figures, Aris Agalarov, a Russian billionaire oligarch, uh, known as Putin's builder, tight with the Russian president for all the building projects he did for the Kremlin. Uh, his son, Emin Agalarov, a uh, wannabe pop star. Uh, and then there's a third character who's just the delicious. The characters are kind of unbelievable. Yeah, Rob Goldstone, the British-born publicist. And um, uh, it, it is at in Las Vegas where uh, Agalarov comes up with the idea of they'll have Miss Universe in Moscow. He can put up the money for it. They'll have Putin's approval. Uh, uh, Trump goes for it, flies to Moscow in November, and um, he's there ostensibly to promote the Miss Universe pageant, but his real interest is getting a business deal with Aras Agalarov. He'd want to build, he'd, he'd wanted a project in Moscow for years. Nothing ever came through. But now, for the first time, he had somebody who was tight with Putin, somebody who had an in with the Kremlin. And so you, this was a real opportunity for him to build this Trump Tower in Moscow, um, solidify his position as a global oligarch. And um, in order for that project to work, he was going to need Putin's approval. He, know, he knows that. And he spends all his time um, flattering Putin on Twitter, in public statements, um, and he's obsessing on meeting Vladimir Putin. In fact, as we describe in the book um, his question all during the day he's in Moscow the day before the Miss Universe is, is Putin coming? Have you heard from Putin yet? Has he called yet? And um, uh, unfortunately for Trump, 
uh, Putin never but there's actually a, there's shows up. There's a delicious up. detail, David, about how Trump deals with that in the end. Well, yes, because he keeps waiting for the call. He keeps waiting for the call, and it's not Putin who calls. It's Dmitry Peskov, who is Putin's chief spokesman, who says, I'm very sorry, the, uh, the president can't meet with you, but he's a big fan, and come back for the Olympics, maybe I'll have time for you then. And Trump is indeed very devastated or disappointed, at the, at the least, that this is not going to happen. But he tells one of his colleagues in Miss Universe, in the organization Miss Universe, well, you know what we can do? We can tell people that Putin came. No one will ever know. You know, like he dropped by. We'll just let people know. And, and this person said uh, they didn't think that was the right idea. But here was, you know, Trump obsessed with this idea of getting together with Putin. And it's also in this time frame, really, if you go back to when he announces in June of 2013 that they will be holding Miss Universe in Moscow in November of 2013, that he starts making a series of positive comments about Vladimir Putin, beginning with a tweet saying, will he become my new BFF, best friend forever? And he does this throughout the fall, leading up into the uh, Miss Universe event. And remember, at this point in time, Putin's reputation as an authoritarian leading a regime in which dissidents and journalists are routinely dispatched with murder is well established. And this is right as the tensions are building up in Ukraine. And even after Ukraine explodes and, 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 and Putin invades Ukraine, Trump is still out there saying positive things about him because I think it goes to this point. He's not a dummy, he knew that if you take on Putin, if you criticize Putin, you're not going to be able to build a tower in Moscow. He won't let that happen. So I think that was what was driving him, along with this sort of identifying with strong men and wanting to be. He wasn't a global oligarch yet, but I think he wanted to be. All right. I, I think we should not glide over uh, one aspect of this trip to, uh, to Moscow. <laughs> what aspect what would, would that be? What, would you, what, what yeah. could you possibly be referring Salacious, to? Salacious, unproven. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but certainly uh, something that got probably as much attention or more than almost anything else. So <laughs> right. what happened? What else happened in okay. Moscow? Well, look, I, I mean, we all know the famous Steele dossier, which makes the allegation of uh, prostitutes in the hotel room in in Moscow at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Uh, and that, we have to say, that remains uncorroborated, unconfirmed. Um, uh, you know, whether it took place or not, sadly, we cannot tell you in Russian roulette. But we can tell you a few, a few data points that you probably didn't know before um, that you can make of it what you will. Um, let's go back to Las Vegas. Now, you remember the allegation in the steel And you can say key tape on we, yeah, steel yes, yes. Can you that, say golden showers? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. you can. Okay. That there was a, the scene of golden showers, uh, you know, uh, prostitutes hired to urinate on the bed in, uh, in, in Trump's hotel room, which is supposedly the suite where Barack Obama had stayed, and, um, and the Kremlin had a tape of Trump with the prostitutes, the urinating prostitutes in the... Um, and the uh, idea the was that was, that was compromised. They were going to use that yeah, right, to blackmail right, 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 right. Trump. All right. So um, uh, what we 
disclose in the book is that five months before, during that Las Vegas uh, visit, um, after Trump meets the Aguilaroffs and Rob Goldstone, uh, they, they all had dinner that night. That was publicly known. There's tape, videotape of them all having dinner that night. Uh, what wasn't publicly known is what happened after that dinner. Um, and that is they all head out to an after party at this raunchy Las Vegas nightclub called The Act. Um, and uh, this was a notorious nightclub known for um, performances uh, that were really quite grotesque, including simulated acts of sadomasochism and bestiality, uh, and so offensive that it was undercover investigation by the Nevada Gaming Commission. At the time, Trump and the Aguilaroffs go there. Remember, this is in Las Vegas. Yeah. It was too risque, <laughs> too risque for, ve for Vegas. For Vegas. And and um, uh, uh, there was actually litigation about this, and we found the court papers. And in the court papers, from a ruling by the judge banning the uh, lewd and offensive performances at the act, she spells them out, and two of them involve, one is called Hot for Teacher, in which dancers posing as college co-eds simulate urinating on their professor, and another where uh, other one woman simulates urinating on another, and the other woman catches it with a wine glass. A lot of details glass. here, a lot of details. A lot of there. details, but Dan asked, so I got to answer his questions. <laughs> That's Hopefully why me. we're here. I mean, okay. So anyway, um, look, we don't know whether those particular performances were performed that night, um, but it is you tried to intriguing. find out. Yes, yeah. yes, and people's memories were a little foggy, but there's it's unquestionable. Uh, it's unquestioned that these were some of the performances that were formed, which I found kind of striking. No. Uh, we also know, just adding one more thing, is Trump is um, uh, Trump's bodyguard, his security chief has since testified before the House Intelligence Committee and has asked about this, and he confirms that somebody, some Russian, offered to send prostitutes up to Trump's hotel room that night, and um, Schiller said, no, no, we don't do that sort of thing. Well, um, never, now, ever. Now well, that, meanwhile, Schiller is also um, the guy who yeah. has arranged uh, yes, you may, you may between have, Trump right. and... Some of, some, of, some of those, yeah. some people here might have heard of Stormy Daniels. If you go back to Stormy Daniels' In Touch Weekly interview, she identified Keith Schiller as the guy who arranged her liaisons with Donald Trump. She said she never had Trump's cell phone number. Um, she only had Schiller's phone number. She would call him or okay. he would call her, and then he would escort her to the hotel. Well, there's there, another interesting point that we raise about this in the book, which is new which is, uh, when it comes to Steele's own assessment of his memos, he has told colleagues... Steele, the author Christopher of... Christopher Steele, Steele, the British spy. The British Former spy British. Who, of the dossier. Of the dossier. He has told colleagues and associates that he believes that of his material that he, found, that he, that he put in all the memos, 70 to 90% of it is accurate. And he's referring to the big picture stuff about possible collusion between Trump's associates and Russia, Russia trying to cultivate or co-opt Trump over a number of years. But when it comes to this particular allegation, you know, whether this event happened in the Moscow hotel room that night, Steele himself tells associates 
it's 50-50. So, I mean, could have happened, might could not have happened. Might have okay. happened. I, I want to move on because uh, I want to make sure there's some time for questions from the audience. Um, and I want to move from Trump's psyche to Putin's psyche. Yes. Um, and what's striking is um, so much of this seems to be driven by pride and ego. And for Trump, I'm sorry, for Putin, a yeah. lot of it is Hillary Clinton. A lot of what mm -hmm. he ended up doing has to do with how Hillary Clinton yeah. got under his skin. So talk about that for a minute. Yeah, what, Hillary Clinton, people might remember, was once Secretary of State. And she was Secretary of State at a time that was very tumultuous in Russia, particularly at the end of 2011. There were parliamentary elections uh, for Putin's party. Now, usually these elections are won handily by the, power, by the party in power. And indeed, Putin's party did win. But there were accusations of rampant voter fraud. There were viral videos of people miscounting votes or stuffing ballots, all to favor Putin's party. And even with all that, he ended up, his party ended up winning, but with a much lower percentage than what they had had before. Um, it was just, I think, 49%. So he didn't even top 50%. So he was, I, I think, quite troubled by this development and showed that the Putin magic might be diminishing a bit. At this point in time, as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton criticized the, ele the election and said she thought that, uh, that Russians deserved legitimate uh, elections with um, monitoring and with fair voting and fair counting. And Putin lashed upon that. Because at this point, tens of thousands, maybe not a lot of people overall, but tens of thousands of Russians were protesting the election and what they thought were fraud. And so Putin got out there and basically said that she was drumming this all up. This was all an American operation. It really speaks to what we've seen for years now to be a deep sense of paranoia, victimhood on his part, in which whether, and, I, and at first, the interesting thing is, Obama people and other Russian experts kind of believe this was just a talking point he came up with for domestic consumption. But they came to believe, actually, particularly as the years went on, that Putin actually believed it. He believed that Obama and Clinton, particularly, were plotting and scheming to get rid of him. Regime change, Regime change, yeah. nonstop. And so, and so he's always had a grudge because that was probably one of his lowest moments politically as president and then president again of Russia. And just one more point from the book. We talk about this secret source that the U.S. government had inside the Kremlin during this time period. And he, this secret source provided the U.S. government with all sorts of information about Putin's plans, including plans for cyber attacks and information warfare against Western democracies, including the United the, States. The, the invasion yeah. of Crimea, Predicted right? the uh, invasion of Crimea. But, but what this source also told um, the U.S. government described the contempt that Putin had for Obama and his administration and described how it was often expressed in nakedly racist terms, um, referring to Obama as a monkey, using the N-word. This is the way people in Putin's court, his inner circle, talk. So it gives you some glimpse. Hillary Clinton, of course, was a part of the Obama administration. But it gives you a glimpse of Putin's I was really kind of struck when I read that. I had not read yeah. that anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's completely new. Um, 
you guys write about uh, a someone, a, a General Valery uh, Gerasimov, mm-hmm. um, who figures prominently uh, in the Russia story. Yes. Why is General Gerasimov so important? Um, Ger- well, picking up on the point that Mike just made about there was a secret source and in Kremlin circles who warned the Americans that that Putin had a major information warfare campaign aimed at not just the United States but the entire West to undermine liberal democracies and democratic institutions. Uh, a year before that, before that information came in, this general named Gerasimov wrote in a very obscure military journal a piece about what he called the new front of, of war, of warfare. And it wouldn't be battalions versus battalions on some battlefield or fighter jets versus fighter jets in the air. It would be basically, you'd be fighting from a distance. And he was talking about cyber attacks, propaganda campaigns, information warfare. And eventually this was translated and, and some people in the US government got wind of this. But what was really interesting, particularly now if you look back at what he said was, he said, well, we could do, what Russia could do, was to exploit the divisions and the political conflicts within the, the adversary. And if you look at how they used a social media campaign in 2016, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to exploit pre-existing divisions in our own society, and how they even were able to sort of gin up the divisions in the Democratic Party between Sanders people and Hillary Clinton's campaign, you can see he kind of called it to a T. And, you know, that actually brings up a really important point. Um, you guys write, I mean, the book is replete with instances of, uh, you know, the U.S. government ignoring intelligence <clears throat> and these kinds of things. This guy was a Cassandra who everyone ignored right, in the yeah, end. Right. And, and so even the social media uh, offensive, yeah. uh, they did, the right. Obama administration did not get. Talk this, about that. This was... A massive intelligence failure. You remember back in the days after 9-11 how, how, how much reporting we did about the intelligence failures that led up to that terrorist attack, how many warnings there were that were ignored that were not picked up on. This is in many ways very analogous because uh, you know, we had that secret source inside the Kremlin who's telling about the, the, uh, uh, Putin's plans. You had the Gerasimov Doctrine. You had reporting in the Russian press about the Internet Research Agency, that's the St. Petersburg troll farm that was just the subject of Robert Mueller's indictment a few, week, uh, a few weeks ago for meddling in the election. There was, there was a whistleblower inside that troll farm, a troll who went public, Ludmila Savchuk, um, who described the operations of the Internet Research Agency. And they were um, the ones who did all the Facebook ads and the yeah, Twitter fake yeah. uh, bots that a lot of you may have and uh, what's, heard about. And what's astonishing, so then you cut to 2016, uh, the Russians do the cyber attack on the DNC, uh, they dump the emails through WikiLeaks, um, and the Obama administration is grappling about what to do, trying to figure out, they're worried, they, they get their reports about the, the probes and the uh, uh, cyber attacks on the state voter election databases, but they were completely clueless about the dimension of the information warfare campaign, which in many ways was the most serious part of it, because it was all done stealthily, um, uh, you know, phony personas, Facebook ads, Twitter bots, um, uh, Twitter bots that the Trump people were retweeting yeah. to the world. Yeah, and 
It was know, like a failure dots, of imagination. Well, failure of imagination, the and the dots were not yeah. connected. Because that was what the 9-11 Commission came up with, that the biggest crime, not crime, the biggest error that had been made by the previous administrations was a failure to imagine, to conceive that an attack like this was possible. And we have a lot of reporting in the book on the White House deliberations in the summer and fall of 2016, what was happening, trying to figure out what the Russians were up to, and what they were doing, and how they should respond. And they were getting intelligence reports in the White House about the hack and dump operations, about the penetrations of the voter databases in various states across the country. But uh, talking to people who were high-level participants in these conversations, they never heard from the intelligence community about the social media campaign and seeing it as part of a greater information warfare campaign. But there's a second piece of this story, which is that once they did figure it out, they were kind of feckless in how they responded, right? Well, they never I mean, figured out the social media They never part figured that, that out. That never came up until yeah. after the election. Yeah. But, but you're right, because there were people inside the White House who got it who understood what was happening, who understood the stakes, and wanted a vigorous response. Um, uh, they were developed options for countermeasures in cyber, uh, countermeasures in information warfare, to dump information about Putin and his corruption and his secret bank accounts, um, uh, and, um, uh, and to strike back against Russian news sites, shut them down, to, um, uh, to go after the various online uh, sites that had been set up to dump Putin's this data. Daughter, right? Well, or Putin's daughter, that was yeah. some of the bank accounts yeah. in Latvia, yeah. which got picked up by the Latvian press, by the way, uh, citing Russian roulette. Um, well, that would be good for sales. We're, we're big in Riga. Yeah, yeah we're big in Riga. Also in Armenia, because one of the uh, uh, scenarios we have, uh, scenes we have in the book is uh, Putin, uh, is Trump hits on an Armenian woman at the Miss Universe pageant, and she rejects his overture the Armenian, uh, the Armenian press picked this up. Um, but on this but anyway, just back to the point that I was, I was going to make. So we talk about a guy, Michael Z Daniel, who was the White House coordinator for cyber, uh, uh, cyber security, who understood the stakes, wanted to strike back. He gets called in by Susan Rice, the national, Obama's national security advisor, and gets told to stand down knock it off, start, stop working on that this. That was the actual language, gonna, stand down, that was knock the, it Those off. are actual quotes in the yeah. book, and it was because uh, she didn't want Obama to be boxed in. She was afraid these proposals would leak and it would force the president's hand. Okay. But they, 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 to be fair, and we try to be very fair in this book, go to chapter 14, the Obama policymakers did disagree with this approach. Their reasons were many. They worried that the election itself could be blown up by Russian interference, and their key concern was trying to make sure that didn't happen. Like everybody else, they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win and the, and the cyber attacks attacking her would not have much of an impact. But also, there was concern that if they struck back with cyber when they're telling the Russians to knock it off, it would lead to escalation. In one of these meetings, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, said, if we get into a tit-for-tat in cyber warfare with the Russians, and we're a much more wired society, they might shut down our electric grid. So there was a real debate and a concern on both sides. What was the best way to get out of this? We have a quote from Susan Rice's 
um, deputy, Avril Haynes, who said, this was the most complicated, complex, difficult issue that I've ever worked on in my government service. So I understand there were reasons to argue for striking well, back, and there were also reasons for doing it differently. Well, that's one of the reasons that cyber is scary, because it levels the, pl the playing field with your, with your rivals. Or even, uh, it can even be asymmetrical. We're, yeah, most, sure. we're a highly developed society. Yeah. We're I very talk, vulnerable. I want to get back to the, the dossier for a second, because you are two of the, the reporters uh, who actually got to know uh, uh, Christopher Steele. Um, and I want, so, you know, there are three level of, of sources here. There's Christopher Steele himself. Um, there are, there's his principal source, the collector, as he's called. And then there are the collector's sources, the so-called subsources. Right. Mm -hmm. So how credible are all of these different layers of sources? Uh, because, you know, yeah. Steele's partner, Burroughs, I mean, you know, he raises serious questions about the credibility of some of this information himself. But right? remember, you know, these were not finished reports. Well, he, right, yeah. that's right. And this is what Chris Steele has said, and others have said right. uh, as well, in that, you know, he was sent out to start looking. He was hired by Fusion GPS, which was working for the Democratic Party and the Hillary Clinton campaign, to go see what you can find. And he uses his network, which you describe very, very well, uh, Danny. Maybe you should become a journalist. <laughs> and, um, and through that, he gets basically what we would call leads information. And he's not publishing. So he doesn't go out and say, we got to confirm this. He starts sending the material to a fellow named Glenn Simpson working at Fusion GPS and to, to get guidance to figure out what to focus on and, and so forth. So I think, you know, People have debated and argued and questioned what's real, what's not real in the memos, and what's accurate and not accurate. But uh, at some point, I think the, the judgments have been a little bit harsh because he was really writing for an audience of one and not distilling himself. Yeah. Well, the well, problem is, the problem is that the, the, the memos became public, and yes. at that point, um, it was well, a document well, yeah. that that, that well, it was going to get the kind of scrutiny in part it got. because. David Korn here uh, wrote right. the first story about yeah. the existence of, 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 right. of his, his work. But yeah. just, uh, but yeah. just to, to you know, go back a, a little, I mean, Christopher Steele was a former MI6, that's the British Intelligence Service, spy in Moscow. Um, he became the, uh, the British government's top, British intelligence community's top specialist on Russia. Uh, and something that we describe in the book that's highly relevant to the news right now is he was the guy in charge of the MI6 investigation of Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian, the former Russian intelligence officer who was assassinated in London by Russians with poison slipped into his uh, into a teapot, um, and it was uh, Steele who first informed the British government um, uh, at the highest levels uh, that this was most likely a Russian assassination on British soil. Sounds a little familiar if you are reading the news today about what happened and to speaking of the news, another yeah. former speaking British of the news spy. Today, uh, one of the most I think powerful pieces of evidence in the yeah. collusion theory involves a young foreign policy advisor to Trump uh, yeah. named George Papadopoulos, which I think a lot of people yeah. in the audience would have heard of him. And you've got 
uh, some new news on, right, on yeah. Papadopoulos. So tell us about that. So Papadopoulos is the guy who effectively start. It was his activities that began the FBI investigation uh, into uh, Trump's campaign in the summer of. Um, in the summer of 2016, he's this young foreign policy advisor named by uh, uh, Trump who goes off and meets these mysterious Russian characters in London who tell him that they can set him up, they can, they can arrange a meeting between Putin and Trump. There's a critical meeting at, uh, uh, with the Trump foreign policy uh, team on March 31st, 2016, in which Papadopoulos informs Trump about this offer from his Kremlin contacts. The previous public report of this meeting are that the idea was quickly dismissed by Jeff Sessions, who was there, said we're not going to talk about this anymore. What we report in the book for the first time is what Papadopoulos, who's now become a cooperating witness in Mueller's investigation, has told investigators, and he says something quite different, that in fact Trump gave him encouragement, a green light, said he was interested in the proposal, interested in the proposal, turned to Sessions uh, as, as if he wanted him to follow up, and Sessions nodded. Um, and that could explain uh, well, why Papadopoulos continued these contacts with these mysterious Russian figures okay, in London. So I've got a couple of bottom line questions that I want both okay. of you guys to answer quickly, because we're running out of time. We've got to go to questions uh, from the audience. One is, isn't it possible that the Russians have this active uh, uh, measures operation? Mm -hmm. um, they are uh, probing uh, the Trump campaign and right. people around Trump uh, to see whether they can uh, penetrate the campaign. They just mm -hmm. keep probing and probing and probing, uh, and eventually, you know, they get some hits. Don Trump Jr., uh, you know, <laughs> Papadopoulos. Isn't it possible uh, that, um, you, know, you know, ultimately uh, it, it's not, you know, there isn't collusion. They right. just happen to, you know, hit at a couple of people who want to collude. It's kind of, uh, but, but, but there isn't a collusion conspiracy here. Well, there, there are two things going on. You're 100% correct that Russian intelligence was trying to make connections with people on the Trump campaign to penetrate it. At the same time, the Trump campaign was sending signals through these contacts and other contacts that they were, or at least wanted to be friends with the Russians. And what makes this, I think, dangerous and interesting is that beginning in June, when the DNC hack is first publicized. You know, there's talk about Russia penetrating the DNC, and then when the information comes out that they're behind this, that in essence, by midsummer, it's pretty clear to most observers that Russia is mounting an information warfare campaign against the United States. And by that point in time, the Trump campaign has already had some contacts, and they know they're, you know, that these contacts have happened, and they continue to go on beyond that. Uh, Jeff Sessions, a senator who's advising Trump, meets with Kislyak. Trump is out there saying there's no, nothing going on with the Russians, even though his own people had been meeting with the Russians. And so I think ultimately you had a situation where there's not a lot of evidence that they sat down and planned with the Russians, let's do this, let's do that. But it looks, I think you can make the case that they aided and abetted, at least in the cover-up and stonewalling, by saying nothing's going on here. When they were sending private signals to the Russians, we want to be your friends, even if this is going on, and they knew that the Kremlin was trying to help. 
Anything you want to add to that? No, I think David summed it up. I think uh, in the, at the end of the book, we uh, we use that line. In a sense, Trump had aided and abetted a uh, Russian conspiracy. I mean, there's. I think there is a consensus by the intelligence community and now the law enforcement community that there was a concerted uh, campaign by the Russians, not just to interfere with in our election, but to but to penetrate the Trump campaign, to get their hooks into the people around Trump so that they would have influence in any further, in, in any future Trump administration. Um, and, um, and, and, and Trump allowed that to happen and by sending these signals of dismissing what the US intelligence community was saying publicly about uh, the Russian efforts, uh, he was letting it be known that um, uh, he wasn't going to interfere with what the Kremlin was up to. Okay, last question for me, and, and you know, it's, this is unknowable, but based on all the reporting that you've done in this book, I am curious what your conclusions are, if you have them or your judgments are, about whether the Russians uh, decisively uh, affected the outcome of the election. Um, I'll, I'll say, look, we don't know. There is simply no way to measure uh, how, to what extent it influenced votes. I mean, you're in talking the about 70,000 votes. Right, that right, right. 70,000 votes. I think it's the wrong question. We have pretty settled law in this country for many, many years that foreigners may not interfere in our election. It's illegal for them to give money in an election. It doesn't matter whether giving the money that pays for super PAC ads or whatever uh, ultimately influences the results of an election. In 1996, you and I covered the foreign money that poured into the coffers of the Clinton campaign, including from Chinese intelligence. Some of the people involved in that were criminally convicted. It didn't hinge on whether or not, had they not done, done so, Bob Dole would have beaten right. Bill Clinton. That's not a question that was ever asked. Right. So it really doesn't matter whether or not the, uh, Hillary Clinton would have won but for the Russian efforts. But the integrity but, of our process. That our is what is important. I agree, I agree with that, but I will say this. I think it was a decisive factor. I think in a, an election this coast, close, there you could identify 6, 12, 15 factors which, if any of them had changed, any single one of them, if she had spent more time in Wisconsin and Michigan, it might have made a difference. And what she we, hadn't had a know, private email right, server. That's right. right? Yeah, right found yeah, herself that's, under criminal ex investigation ex ex by exactly. the FBI. Exactly. If James Comey hadn't written that letter Absolutely. last week. Right. But right. one thing that, I, I, that was so, I think, pernicious politically from the um, Russian operation was that for the last four weeks of the campaign, literally every single day, they put out a new collection of emails from John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign CEO, and that blocked out a lot of space for the WikiLeaks campaign. WikiLeaks had never done that before. No, they had never, this was what this was different. They did it you, strategically, They right? did it strategically, right. yeah. and focus groups run by the Clinton campaign found that swing state voters, swing voters, were getting confused. They thought that all the headlines they were seeing were an indication that Hillary Clinton's own email issue had come back, which had been resolved, we thought, a few months earlier, and they were saying, why is she blaming this on the Russians? And so anytime the notion of emails, any mention of emails was in the news, it was sort of a big stab at her campaign. And they managed to do that every single day for the last month of the campaign. I find it hard to believe that didn't have 
somewhat of an impact. Yeah. Okay. Questions from the audience? Hi. Um, so even with the Russia collusion issue aside, I think we're also still seeing a endless cycle of scandal and abuse and impeachable offenses and allegations from the Trump administration. And I think we've also seen impeachment kind of arisen from much less. So why do you think people are kind of holding back on the whole impeachment idea for Trump, well, the Trump administration? Well, look, there's a very easy answer to that because right now the com Republicans control Congress. The Republicans are pretty much standing behind Trump. There's a few senators who aren't, but you know, very few House members, and impeachment has to um, uh, initiate in the House. But look, I will say this, um, uh, if the Democrats do regain control of the House in November, uh, and there seems to be a consensus, it's at least 50-50, if not better, and we actually may have a better sense tomorrow night to see what the results of that special election in Pennsylvania are. Uh, it's hard for me to see how Trump isn't impeached. Um, I've done this thought exercise in my mind, and I'm trying to imagine uh, a Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, uh, or, or any of the other Democratic leaders standing in the well of the House and arguing against impeaching Donald Trump, given where the Democratic political base so, is. So, so if they have I, the votes, it's going to happen. I, I, would they, think, yeah. I would think the odds are he will, yeah. but, um, but remember, you know, he gets impeached, it goes to the Senate for a trial, and you need 67 votes in the yeah. Senate to convict. But even more important, and I, I, I realize that that sounds serious, more important than impeachment, today we learned that the House Intelligence Committee is stopping their interviewing process and trying to wrap up their investigation of the Trump-Russia scandal. And to me, that is indeed sort of a political crime. They have not done nearly enough work. We talk to the Democratic members, and if anything they say is true in terms of the Republicans not backing subpoenas, not calling people back in for second interviews, it just seems like the shoddiest of investigations we've ever had. And impeachment would presumably involve investigations, as did previous impeachment hearings. But it's more important whether we go down the impeachment path to still get Congress to mount a decent probe of what happened so the American public at least has a baseline of information about what the Russians did, about anything that the Trump campaign might have done, and also what do we do, most importantly, to prevent this from happening with the midterms. Can we get one more question? Um, uh, so Donald Trump's been acting uh, very shady about his tax returns since even before Russia was sort of an inkling of thought in our minds, yeah. uh, all the way back to the primaries. Um, what do you guys think that he's hiding? It could be a number of things. It could be that he's not as wealthy as he's made out to be. It could be that he gives zero amount of money to charities. It could also indicate what his loan structure is. Now, taxes don't tell you everything. You know, but he has a business empire that has literally hundreds of LLCs, shell companies, and we don't know what they all do. But starting with the tax returns would be the fundamental, the first step you'd want to do sort of a financial forensic of him and his organization. And we don't have those. We have time for one more question. Hi. Um, so I was wondering, um, have, has there any been evidence in the past elections of uh, Russian collusion or influence? And do you think that going forward, 
with technology uh, changing, uh, that they could still be or, or, or would, would, that would still happen? We, we talk in the book, uh, going back to the Cold War era, about Russian active measures. This was something that the KGB did for decades, planting phony stories in the international press about how the CIA was, uh, was behind the AIDS epidemic or was using biological uh, agents in Vietnam, you know, a whole host of things which the, uh, which the KGB just invented. Um, but part of that did try to influence American elections. Nothing like what we saw this year, but there was one incident we describe in the book where they planted a phony story about how a Democratic candidate who was a hawk on Russia uh, was a member of a gay sex club in Washington. This was back in the uh, 1970s. That was, yes, 1970s. So it wasn't that long ago. So you saw this sort of thing. It was part of the Kremlin playbook during the Cold War, and it came back with a vengeance All right. in this last election. All right, Mike, David, thanks so much for joining us at Build. I'll get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to mention the book, right? <laughs> Show you know? the damn book. All right, fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and thanks for joining us on this special edition of uh, Skullduggery. Um, check out Skullduggery uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Michael Isikoff and David Korn's new book, Russian Roulette, is out today. Uh, yeah. It's an amazing book. I actually read every word of it. Uh, okay. Which is, which is something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>